we're in kind of a, a trajectory of sermons together as a church. Uh, we've looked for a couple weeks now at what does it mean to have a new heart? And so we're actually looking as God changes our hearts um, in the next couple weeks, what will it look like to have that kind of new heart? How do we know what that new heart looks like? And so we come to this passage in Joel. And as you can tell both by the sermon title, by the key biblical truth, by the text itself, right, underlying it is the question of repentance. Now, for most of us, uh, we assume this as part of the Christian tradition. We should be repentant, but uh, I trust as we watch the political campaign that, right, don't, isn't what we deeply long for at some fundamental level is any sign of repentance by any of the major candidates for any of the things that they've done. Um, wouldn't that be refreshing? Not a... I'd like to excuse what I did by giving you the, the um, pressing circumstances that brought me there or uh, the terrible I'm sorry you feel that way, um, non-apology. But right, what we long for is actually some demonstration of their heart that would cause us to say not, um, at least for many of us, I, I won't speak to all of you, I'm voting with great reluctance and distaste, but I feel I have no other option. But actually some confidence of this person is responsive to failings in their own life in such a way that they would acknowledge it, change direction, and model for me some hope. If that's too abstract or maybe uh, uh, too political, um, think about the relationships in our own life. Um, I have young daughters, uh, six to eight. Many of you have seen them as when we have opportunity to bring them here. And one of the great challenges of this stage of parenting is the discipline thing. When they do something wrong, um, not infrequently, they become incredibly frustrated. And, and you know, um, and then it starts the, that kind of doom loop that we've all seen with younger children starts, and then the behavior gets worse. And so uh, either we put them in timeout or they run away at this point and um, shut themselves in their room uh, because, you know, it's just a small line from 8 to 10 years, I'm guessing. And, um, and then they sit there. And they stew, and they seethe, um, just furious and simultaneously so unsure of what to do next, right? And my children have a tendency to stew. They'll sit in there forever, and then eventually they start playing or doing other things, which is then um, a time that we kind of step back and like, no, 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 you're not here because you get um, a kind of private time where there's no responsibility. We have to talk. Um, but as we've talked about, you know, what are we expecting as parents? What would be bad would be either, A, staying in that room forever, uh, because that doesn't resolve it, or just returning into the family as if nothing had happened, which is also unacceptable. We would like to see a changed heart. And I suspect all of us know that both as people who've been offended and hurt in the past, as well as people who do some hurting of our own, that we know the greatest challenge um, is what does repentance look like? What's the nature of this new heart? And how does God move us toward it? So Joel gives us a remarkable picture of that. Um, part of what Joel says about repentance is this. Repentant, repentance is a return to God, not just a deep feeling of guilt or sorrow. Look again at verses 12 of Joel 2 um, and the beginning of verse 13. Uh, it begins this way, right? Even now, declares the Lord. And the context is this. 
um, in the first chapter and a half of Joel, God has said, look, I'm going to judge you. It's going to be terrible for you. Locusts will literally take everything away. Disaster is upon you. But even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. And you'll notice, right, um, is this repeated um, idea of return to me, return to the Lord your God. Um, But you see, sin is not just um, bad action, right? It's not just doing the wrong thing, though it's certainly that. The problem with doing the wrong thing is not just the act itself is a bad act. It's the direction that that act takes you toward. Not toward necessarily some moral precipice, but every time we sin, the fundamental choice we're making is not... um, at the highest level, should I maim, hurt, or kill someone? Or at um, a more trivial level that we wrestle with, should I be dishonest because it would soothe um, a little social awkwardness right now and all of the things that come in between, right? It's not just the moral gravity of those things. It's the choice, essentially, that we're asking every time. Will I walk one step closer toward God in this moment, or will I walk one step further away from him? We can get so caught up in, well, how sinful was this act? Or how, but the fundamental question is, did I press more closely toward God at this moment, or did I walk slightly away from him at this moment? And obviously, over the course of the lifetime, those divergences become increasingly different. But that's the fundamental choice, right, that Adam and Eve faced. The issue was not there was some magical fruit, and by nature of eating a magical fruit, magical, terrible things began to happen. That's the difference between fairy stories and reality. The fundamental choice God gave them at that moment was this. Will you trust me? And will you obey me? And when they reached out for the fruit, it wasn't as if some magical spiritual thing happened. The choice they had to make was, do I believe God is right? Or do I think I am righter in deciding the fruit is actually good to eat? He says it brings death. I think it could be tasty. (laughs) Who will I believe? Right? Will I walk toward him in trust or will I choose myself in distrust? And those trajectories lead us. And it's because of that trajectory, right, that God, I think, says in Joel, um, turn back to me. Return to me. Right? Repentance is the choice to return to God, to come home from that distant country that we've wandered our way to. Some of us quite unaware of what we were doing. Others of us, like the way I sin, having pre-planned it a little bit more, thought about it, designated my course, typed in the address and the GPS, and began to make my drive. It's to come home, right? It's to reverse course from the direction we we're going and to return into our Father's arms, to leave behind the things that distract us where they are, And to stop what we're doing in reversing course, right? To actually change direction. And it's so critical, I think, for us to understand repentance this way because repentance is not just feelings, though it may include that, right? That's what the rest of um, Joel 12 and 13 get at, right? Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Um, Return to the Lord your God. And then he says, with fasting and with weeping and mourning, uh, rend your heart and not your clothes. He's saying, look, 
I would hope this change of direction would be accompanied by some sense of remorse, by some sense of guilt, by some sense of a desire for reconciliation. But let's not confuse the desire with actually the decision. Um, Why isn't it just feelings? Because as soon as we make repentance about how deeply sorry we feel or how deeply confessional we are in the moment or how grieved we are at what I did, essentially repentance becomes about us again, right? All of a sudden the measure of our repentance is um, how deep we can feel rather than the direction to which we must return. And I think any time you're repentant, when the issue becomes how you're feeling rather than the action that you're taking to return to God, it really becomes about you. Because essentially what you're saying is, I just want to assuage the guilty feelings I have. I'd like to make myself better, feel better in this process. It becomes, um, at that moment, when that becomes the definition of repentance, um, suddenly rather than walking toward God, we're still fully immersed in walking toward ourselves. Now, I do think, um, well, the other thing is why it's not just a feeling, is when repentance is defined just by how guilty we feel or how bad we feel at the moment, um, it's only as lasting or deep as that feeling is, right? I don't know about you, I can't sustain guilty for terribly long. Um, my, every psychological... Um, tool in my toolkit is designed to help me not feel bad all the time. And so if it's just I have to feel bad all the time, um, I'm stuck, right? I, I cannot manufacture that long enough. Um, what I can do, though, um, is I can turn and I can change direction, right? Um, now, of course, true repentance should be accompanied by feeling because we're aware of the betrayal that sin is. It should be accompanied by feeling because we need to grapple with the hurt that we've caused. And there should be grief if we love the person that we've hurt, whether God or someone else. And we all know that, right, in practical experience, if somebody has really hurt you and they come to you sobbing and crying and asking for forgiveness, in the end, we're moved and it helps us believe that they feel bad. But in the end, right, what, what I don't need them to do is mope around me for the next six months. What I long for is change your behavior then. Stop hurting me. Right? When I see my children crying, I'm so sorry I did that. I'm like, I love you and I welcome you and I'm glad that you're showing me that your heart is moved by this. But in the end, stop doing it. Right? You can feel bad for the next four years, but if you don't stop doing it, there's no repentance. There's just guiltiness. And while I admit I savor a little guiltiness as a parent, but it just gives me a sense that something has happened, what I really want is the behavior to stop. Right? I want them to turn from their behavior and change. Um, and so um, Joel seems to say, look, repentance is a return to God, not just a feeling of guilt. And then the invitation is so turn to him, right? Leave that distant country you've wandered yourself off to. Open the door of the room that you've, stu- um, that you've shut and hidden behind. Um, stop giving me your back and turn your face to me. Come home, my lost child. So what provokes repentance? Then what helps us move from that distant country and think, I should go back home now, right? What helps us think, I am not going to stay in this small little room forever. I'm going to open the door and actually return to that relationship, right? What gives us the courage to pick up the phone in just the most human interaction and say, I'm going to call and say I'm sorry? 
and will you forgive me? I want to suggest that repentance is provoked by God's character. Look at the last half of 13 and the begin and all of verse 14. What does it say? It says this, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Right? God's holiness may require repentance. Because he is holy. He is morally true and right. And ultimately, the definition of sin is the definition um, defined by God because it's his moral standards that define what is good and what is evil. We can't hide from that, right? And it's true. His wrath may suggest it would be good to repent because we do believe he judges sin. We would be less than Christian if we didn't believe that. And uh, we didn't read the first chapter and a half of Joel, but it's clear that he does that. And so... Holiness may require it and wrath may suggest it, but look at what this passage says. It says this, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, right? Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Um, We may stop doing bad thing because it angers someone or we're afraid of going to jail, but in the end, the only thing that brings us to a place of saying, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I desire to change is never fear of punishment. It's never just because you know you did something wrong. The only thing that allows us to make this more than just um, behavioral control and actual reconciliation of a relationship is the belief that if you turned and said, I'm sorry, the response you would get would be, I forgive you. I've been waiting for you. I can't wait to restore our relationship again. Even if it's not that full-blown, right? Wouldn't most of us be willing to accept in our most human relationships? Thank you for saying that. I promise you I am trying to forgive you, and I will walk with you through this process together, right? Ultimately, what draws us to a place of changed life is not just the fear of punishment or the fear of a breaking moral standard. It's the deep conviction and belief that God is out there crying out to you. I'm here waiting for you. If you would just come to me, you'd hear the words you most long to hear. I love you and I forgive you. There is nothing to be frightened of here. Um, I think often of how this works when I think of the story of Jamie Bulger. Um, Most of us have long since forgotten him, but he was an English boy, two years old, um, shopping with his mom at a shopping mall when he just disappeared. Uh, Two days later, they found his um, clearly mutilated body by some railroad tracks not far away from the shopping mall. And as the investigation happened, as they reviewed videotapes, um, the suspects turned out to be two 10-year-old boys who had lured him out of the store, had tortured him, um, and killed him and abandoned his body. And so they brought the boys in, obviously, to um, the police station. where they confronted them with the evidence, the boys would say nothing, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, refused to acknowledge anything, and finally they brought in one of the boys' parents, um, and the evidence was clear. There was no question 
that they had done it. They had videotape watching them take him out. There was physical evidence on the scene. And yet the boy would not confess until at one point um, his mother looked at him in the eyes and said, you know we love you, right? We will always love you and you will always be our son. And for the first time, right, in hours of questioning, that 10-year-old boy began to tear up. And he finally said, I killed Jamie. It wasn't fear of the police. It wasn't the obvious signs of the evidence which had been presented to him as a 10-year-old for what he could understand of it. It was the assurance that he was loved, that that love would not change no matter what he had said, that at least there was one safe place for him in this whole world that had gone terribly wrong. And God says that to us, right? Return to me. Return to the Lord your God, for I am gracious and compassionate. I am slow to anger and abounding love, and I relent from sending calamity. Repentance um, is a return to God, right? It may be accompanied by deep emotion, but it's fueled ultimately not by the emotions that we feel, but by the emotions that God himself feels. Right? It's motivated not by our deep sense of guilt, but it's actually motivated by God's immense, unending, right, unseverable attitude of love and forgiveness. Holiness is there, yes, because that's why we need to repent. Right? Wrath is there as a reminder of why this is so significant, because God cares about things going well, but ultimately what draws us to him is these arms that are outstretched that says, come home, stop wandering from me. And he says, look, here's the, here's the offer I make to you. It's not just I forgive you and now I want to have nothing for you. But Joel goes on to say this, right? Who knows? He may return. He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. That literally what it says is this. Not only will he forgive you, he will give you the very tools you need in order to restore the relationship that you desire to have with him. Right? It's one thing to say, I forgive you and I'm not going to do anything else with you. Let's just part um, as frenemies or whatever right, the alternative would be. Um, or I forgive you, but I'm done with you. What he literally says is, um, I forgive you and I want to take you out to a meal so that we can celebrate together. I'm inviting you back into my house and I'm going to create the room for you put out the great linens, and we are going to be in relationship again together. Everything that you need in order to be in touch with me, I will provide for you because the reality is you have nothing right now. Um, right? To use the story that I keep referring from the New Testament, um, which is not really about a prodigal son at all, but about a searching father who just longs to celebrate with his child, we, we need to move from that distant land of feasting on pig slop and return to our father's house where the fatty calf is once again being offered up for our delight and our enjoyment. We need to return from the field where we've been laboring faithfully but filled with resentment and realize that the father comes out to us too and says, come home, celebrate with me. Everything you need is actually already yours. And everything I long for you to have, I'm actually reaching out for you, to you. I'm leaving the house just like I led, left the house for your younger brother to remind you of how deeply I love you. And you see, when we repent, we enter into God's presence again because we have returned. 
that that's actually the nature of repentance. Now, what this doesn't get into, of course, is that as we make that turn, knowing that God's goodness and knowing God's grace, we make that turn fully aware that that actually does change our behavior, right? It actually is reflected by lives which reflect this turn toward choosing God and choosing to press into God rather than walking away from God. And that's why um, as we think about how shallow repentance often is in the public square, why it's in the end so unsatisfying, right? It's why it's so unsatisfying when the church confesses its sins around um, racial injustice and yet nothing changes. And so I listen to my um, friends, particularly my black and Latino friends, who are like, I'm glad you feel bad about it, but press into God and let's change our behavior, right? It's the marriages that are struggling where we say, I'm glad you're turning back to God, you're turning toward me, change your behavior, and press in back toward me, right? It's for all of us as we wound one another in this congregation, and you will, and you will have to if you're actually going to be in the kinds of relationships that are honest, that are transparent. It's impossible to be nice that long, right? And you're an awfully nice congregation, but I have to believe there are at least some sharp edges when we fully reveal who we are to one another. The ability to say, I will forgive you, and I'm going to hope and trust that you'll keep your elbows a little more closely to your sides the next time we have this kind of conversation. And that's how we're going to build bonds, which the reality is, right, are far stronger than just niceness together. The friends that I know I can trust are the friends who can say, I can say about and can say of me, we've actually intentionally hurt or damaged one another over the course of our many years together. We've extended forgiveness to one another. We've tried to change our behavior. And because of that, I rely on them. Because that friendship, that relationship has been tested, right? That relationship, that friendship um, has proven to me that when I've sinned against them, forgiveness will be offered and they will trust me enough to try again. And I've done the same for them. All of that is built into repentance. But the key move is turn back to God. And away from the path that you're going, don't worry if you don't feel bad enough. Because I talk and pray with so many college students who are like, I know I did something wrong, but I just don't feel really guilty. But I still know it was bad. I'm like, don't worry. If you know it's bad, turn to God. And then I know other students who are so overwhelmed by their sense of grief and guilt that all they can do is sit there. I'm too guilty to talk to God. And what we keep saying is it's not about your emotions. As real and as important as they are, it's your decision. Turn back to God. Don't fail to pray because you're feeling so guilty. That is not repentance either, right? Because we believe God welcomes us and models that for us. So if repentance is a return to God, it's provoked by God's character, let me suggest at the end, repentance really should define our community, and I already began to step in that, but if you look at verses 15 to 16, you notice how comprehensive this call to repentance is for this new community um, of gods. Blow the trumpet in Zion, Joel writes, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, and gather the children, including those nursing at the breast, right? From newborns uh, to the oldest, bring them in. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. People who should be able to have private lives, pull them back out and gather them into this assembly. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is your God? 
Let me take this beyond the normal step that we normally do when we talk about repentance. Because when I talk about repentant hearts, most of us think, well, individually I should repent. And so we think about the sins and we think about returning to God. Excellent foundation for everything, of course. But what strikes me about Joel's claim about this new heart is that it's a new heart expressed as part of a new community that God is pulling together for himself. That definitive of this community of people who are identified as God's children, as God's people, is this call for there to be a collective response to our sin as well. Um, Because we should repent individually, of course, but we also need to repent as communities. And it's so easy, particularly here in the West, to think of ourselves largely as individuals who make individual sins. But at least in my Chinese community, Um, I know my failures are failures of my entire family system and are treated that way. And so we have a responsibility as family members both to do well, but when one of us fails, um, the community, the family repents. And that's what you often see. I think um, I've noted, um, I was talking with a friend, he said, you know, why is it that, um, well, there was this case of, um, the last case that we talked about, it was a, some Asian missionaries from Korea got caught doing something, were arrested, it became an international incident. And literally, the entire country offered an apology for the actions of one or two people. That their entire church did, and then um, the South Korean government did. And everyone that I talked to in the West was like, that seems a little odd that your government would apologize for your actions as an individual. And I said, well, if you grew up in Asia, you don't exist as an individual. You exist as part of a larger community, Um, right? You see throughout the Old Testament, uh, Moses confessing how we have sinned against you. It's in Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9, in Nehemiah's prayer in Nehemiah 1. Um, that There's some sense of collective identity as well as collective responsibility of being the people of God together. And so God says to Joel, I don't just need each of you to repent in each of your homes. In part, The sins that we're complicit in aren't just individual sins. They're collective sins uh, that we have complicity in or participation in. In part, I need you to confess together as a community because in the end, um, we need one another in order to make that return. Most of us um, are unable to do it by ourselves. But in fact, we need the body of Christ to say with us together um, in some church traditions to pray a confession every week together to remind us as a community we are all making that return together. Um, I might want to suggest that the distinctive mark of being a Christian community actually is its ability to repent together. Um, Others say it's love, but the reality is I know a lot of other non-Christian communities that are very loving and very caring often in ways that um, shame me with the sacrifice and selflessness that they offer. Other people will say, well, it's acts of kindness and mercy, and I know a lot of non-Christian communities where uh, people are just far nicer than I will ever be, uh, far more compassionate to those in need than I or my communities will ever manage to get ourselves to. Um, They're there. The one distinctive thing that Christians do that nobody else seems to do is regularly gather Uh, week by week, season by season, to say, we sinned, we're sorry, we desire to change, right? What other community does that on a regular basis? We do it, right, every time we have communion together. 
But the most distinctive mark, I think, of the Christian community is not our love or kindness. I wish it were. But perhaps the most distinctive mark is a full awareness of our sin, the ability to confess it without being shamed into it, and then to change our behavior. Excuse me. That's why when Christian groups on campus are always plagued, I kind of just revealed my hand there, um, they're always invited to, like, let's do a big worship night where we'll praise God because I think that will really be a witness to the campus. And I'm like, the campus doesn't care that you're all gathering together to worship, pray. You do that every Friday. And frankly, as far as they can tell, it's a giant self-indulgent karaoke night. The lights are dim. The words of music are on the screen. There's no bouncing ball, and all of you are sober. It's a little incomprehensible, but glad you all like to sing. Right? Because if you don't believe, that's their experience of a giant worship night. It's a giant karaoke party of sober people. It makes no sense. And I also said, so if you want to gather together to do something that would be distinctly Christian, wouldn't it be far better to say, let's gather for a night of confession? Public confession. I think non-Christians would come to that. I think they'd be fascinated. I, I think they'd be deeply intrigued about how aware we were of how we failed and whether we really believed God forgave us as we prayed. I think they would be moved by humility Uh, moved by um, honesty, I think they would wonder what kind of God it was that could hear that and still say, I love you and I want you back. I said, I, so I always tell my students, don't spend a lot of time playing worship night. How about we organize a giant confession night? I think people would be changed. Um, Because in the end, I think repentance is the distinctly Christian thing of how we approach God. Imagine how it would change, um, I've already referred to once, right, race relations in the United States, if we were able to, as a nation to figure out how appropriately say, we are sorry, we have sinned, we desire to change. Imagine how marriages would be healed if we could train um, in premarital counseling, not just, hey, let's do personality tests and talk about budget and um, money and sex, but actually we're able to say, let's learn to say I'm sorry as a foundational first thing in our relationship building, right? As a parent, I'm trying to say it frequently to my children when I do something wrong, particularly when I'm cranky and tired and I snap at them. Um, I want to model for them quickly what it looks like for a parent to say, I am very sorry, I was wrong. I should not have done that. Will you forgive me, right? Because I'm hoping to model for them a kind of distinctly Christian behavior that will go just beyond being nice to their classmates. I think when we do that, um, we begin to point to the reality that God is there Right, that's what the priests are invited to pray for. Spare your people, Lord. Show mercy with some confidence that He will. Don't make your ob- inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, "Where is their God?" Because if you're being punished in the ways that Joel describes, people wonder maybe your God just can't hack it. Maybe He can't control the weather. Maybe you're being run over by armies because other gods are more powerful. But it seems to just if you're able to do this, they'd say, "Oh, there is their God." That's what it looks like. I know I've told this story before, but let me end with it because I love it and it models for me, I think, what I would love for us to capture at the end. Um, InterVarsity leads mission projects uh, overseas. Um, I've led several, particularly to China. We're very upfront as being InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, so the government knows who we are, the school knows who we are, so nobody gets in trouble for us being there. And we figure it's not like a group of 30 American college students showing up to do language study suddenly who are all kind of very nice and sing songs together, um, is not identified as Christian. The government knows we're there. We're paired up 
with Chinese counterparts during the course of the summer. And the American students inevitably are like, we are going to outserve the Chinese people. And that's how they're going to know Jesus is there. Because you can't initiate conversations about Jesus if you're a visitor. And we said, we're here officially. We're going to honor that. Now, at that point, I always laugh because, honestly, a, pe a group of people who, one, don't have the language, have no culture, experience, and no resources cannot outserve people who are already there. Plus, at least in my experience, Asian culture has made it kind of an art form to try to pre-serve people before they even know they have a need. So you're kind of doomed from the start. Um, but it usually frustrates the American students, and by week three, they've hit culture shock. They're cranky with one another. They're really hating the fact that they eat the same food every day, even though we point out the fact that your eating is a blessing. <laughs> because a lot of people in the world don't have the problem of being bored with their food yet. Um, but they're usually cranky. And usually by week four, we're hopeful for a turnaround, and then we debrief like mad once we get home. Um, so we were in week three of the program. I was standing next to one of the Chinese counterparts. Uh, and I said, so what's your experience of the program been like? We were standing in a long queue waiting for, I don't know, some ticket or something. And she said, you know, I've been watching the InterVarsity students. And I thought, oh. And she goes, they seem to fight a lot. And I was like, oh. <laughs> you know, and so I'm like, yeah, you know, it's cross-cultural stress, and it's week three. It no longer feels like a fun vacation mission trip, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, no, no, what really strikes me about the InterVarsity students is not just that they fight, um, but, you know, they always try to reconcile with one another, and I don't understand that. Because here in China, if you bother me or you get on my nerves, I just walk away. There are a billion other people to talk to. <laughs> um, why is it that the InterVarsity students um, keep trying to reconcile with one another? Right? It was like the slowest pitch softball ever sent my way. And if you know me at all, you know I need a super, super slow-mo softball pitch, right? But it's like, I was like, why do the Christian students care so much about reconciliation? Let me tell you, right? What was distinctive about the Christian witness in that place? It wasn't that we could outserve her. It wasn't that we were more loving. It was an awareness that we had failed, that we had to turn back to God and to back to one another, trusting that the other person and that God would respond, I love you, I'm committed to you, and of course I forgive you. And it's in that moment, right, in that moment of reconciliation that the changed heart of Christian students was most revealed in that context. It wasn't in our strength, it wasn't in our power, it was in our absolute failure and our sensitivity to say this cannot continue, I must return to the God who forgives me and to my community. And if I do so, the power of the gospel will reveal it. Brothers and sisters, I invite you, if today you have not yet returned to God, today make a choice. Return to God. His arms are outstretched toward you. You have nothing to fear. And for those of you who do that regularly, let me encourage you, testify not just to God's goodness and the great things that happen. Let's testify to one another about his mercies. New every morning offered to us. Let me pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Um, as I know, they're a congregation um, whose hearts are soft toward you and who love you. So um, today, as in every day, help us to hear your voice, to turn to you, to return to the home that we know where we will be loved and welcomed, um, where there needn't be fear because we've encountered your goodness. And then, Lord, help us as a community model this for Westchester County, 
uh, and for the nation. May we be a people who not just confess our individual sins, but grapple with the sins of who we are as a people, and then come together as a repentant people so that people would see the power of God at work. Create in us a clean heart, we pray, O Lord our God. Amen.